0: Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. But millions of people read his columns in newspapers around the country and online. In addition to that, syndicated columnist Hal Thomas has written about 10 books on various topics, giving us the pulse of politics and culture and religion, you know, the big three. Um, He is a former Fox News Channel contributor. And always witty and insanely smart—I really insanely smart. He's here today to talk about Christmas, the precarious state of our country, summarized in his book *America's Expiration Date*, and how Christmas really is the solution to that predicament. That I'm—I talk about that. I'm talking about the true meaning of Christmas.
1: Welcome, Cal Thomas. Well, thank you, Lauren. Uh, as far as insanely smart, I have been called insane by my critics, but not so much smart. But I appreciate the compliment. you know you are i mean and i always hate to
0: tell people this because it always means oh you're old no but you're you really have a legacy here about your career legacy of being a columnist um do you do you find that
1: a little bit like unnerving when i say you're a a legend um a living legend yeah well one of the fox hosts once called me a um Uh, a legend or uh, something like that reminded me of the line uh, so-and-so is a legend but only in his own mind. Uh, (laughs) Yeah I guess that's what they call you when you get older. I I just had another birthday and uh, they seem to keep coming around once a year and so I think I'm going to do what Reagan did and count the anniversary of my 39th birthday. But it's been a great ride. I mean I I was very fortunate to start out in uh, radio when I was 16 just after my voice changed. Got a job as a copy boy at NBC News in Washington and worked with and met some of the most famous and, and well-regarded journalists of those days like David Brinkley and uh, Sander Van Oker who covered the Kennedy White House. And I was trained uh, by the best. Uh, I lament what journalism has become today. I think it has become more advocacy than truth-seeking. And uh, that's kind of discouraging. And it's, it's not helpful uh, to uh, a generation that is looking for what to believe.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's really very true of the generation because you, you and I, even though you're a little older, um, <laughs> um, we up in a generation where faith was really woven into the
1: fabric of the country, right? Right. Well, they had the uh, McGuffey Readers, which uh, had uh, supplements of scripture in them that went along with history and math and science. Uh, You could uh, bring a Bible to school and it wasn't treated as contraband. You saluted the flag uh, in appreciation for your country every morning. Now we're told in many schools that because of so many uh, different nationality backgrounds, uh, we can't salute the American flag anymore because that's xenophobia. And there are consequences to this. Uh, Our national motto is out of many one, but it is rapidly becoming out of one many. We're all seen as tribes, members of tribes, racial groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, fighting each other, and there is no unity anymore, and it takes a tragedy like 9-11 to bring us together. Uh, And I think that there are people who are invested in division. Uh, They are fundraisers, they are uh, people who keep track of ratings on certain cable channels, they are uh, people who profit in many ways, by keeping us divided. And it's very, very sad. It's not the kind of America that I uh, grew up in, although there were certainly divisions then. We managed to work through them for the most part.
0: Yeah, you know, is this kind of the background for your book, America's Expiration Date? Because that's kind of a scary kind of concept to think that, you know, um, that America has a, uh, you know, expiration date. <laughs> An expiration date that America will, I mean, in terms of, yeah. you know, logically, we all know that the world will end at some point. Yeah. But in terms of America, America was this great promise that uh, sprang to, on the scene of humanity, you know, um, more than, you know, almost 300 years ago.
1: Well, Ronald Reagan's famously said, we're only one generation away from losing it all. Uh, what we enjoy in a constitutional republic and the freedoms we uh, celebrate is not the normal status of the world. You look around the world, you have dictatorships, you have religious fanatics, uh, you have censorship, all of these other things. United States is an oasis in the midst of deserts of intolerance and uh, fundamentalist religions and all kinds of other things. And like a library book, uh, our freedoms have to be renewed every generation or they are lost. Uh, the book, America's Expiration Date, is, uh, was inspired by a uh, British diplomat uh, who lived in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries named Sir John Glove, and he studied 4,000 years of human history and found there was a common denominator to the decline of great nations. Number one was massive national debt. Anybody disagree we have that? Number two was uncontrolled immigration without assimilation. Can anyone disagree that we have that? And number three was the loss of a shared moral sense. And we are certainly in that category today. Everyone has their own truth. It is subjective. It is not objective. As long as your truth makes you feel good, whether it's wrong or not, uh, that's fine. If my truth is different, it makes me feel good. That's okay, too. So the founders and presidents subsequently have always referred to a, a religious foundation that makes America unique in the world and unique in world history. My view in this book is we are losing it all very quickly. Solzhenitsyn warned against it in his famous Harvard speech in the mid-1970s, which the left did not want to hear, and uh, he was a prophet for our times, that all of these things are coming true, and if they are not reversed, there's no guarantee we will not go down the same road as these other superpowers and nation states.
0: You know, you bring up a good point because I wanted to talk a little bit about that um, Harvard study that was out um, that I, Christianity Today um, did a cover article on, even though the study came out, um, uh, I think, 2017, but they just wrote a cover story on it. But it says the research indicates that the declining religious service attendance accounts for about 40 percent of the rise in suicide rates over the past 15 years. Yeah. There is a despair. It's, it's a health issue. When You know, the, the people, when they don't have
1: faith, right? Right. Well, people need a reason to get out of bed in the morning uh, besides going to work, getting a paycheck and buying stuff. That doesn't uh, satisfy or fulfill. You ask a lot of rich people and they'll tell you, if they're honest, uh, their main uh, goal now, if they're rich, is to maintain what they have. And that has its own problems. God has made a hole in each of our hearts to be filled only by himself. We try to fill it with other things, uh, whether it be uh, personal pleasure, uh, affluence, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. (laughs) And and it doesn't satisfy. Uh, I'm reading a book uh, by Elton Trueblood. Uh, It's an old book called The Company of the Committed. And one of the things he says in there is that people do not, younger people especially, do not regard what he calls Christianity or faith as relevant because they see the church as basically a performance institution. You go, you sit, you you take in what is said from the platform. Maybe you drop some money in the plate or have communion, and that's your sole participation. Uh, And they don't see it uh, uh, fixing any of the problems they see need to be fixed. And they don't see, I mean, I remember a quote from Bill Gates who said uh, he didn't go to church on Sundays because he didn't think it was a productive use of his time. Well, you've got to feel a need before you can go see uh, a doctor or a pastor for a solution. And of course, the culture tells you, you know, you don't need any of this stuff. Here, buy the new iPhone. It'll make you happy.
0: Right. I mean, are you surprised? I mean, I'm not surprised. I know you're not surprised that the secular media just sort of glossed over the study that would show that, that religious experiences or going to church every week actually makes you healthier in terms of community. And it's not just, you know, the community aspect of it. It is actually aligning yourself with something that is eternal.
1: Yeah. Well, I do think there has been a loss of community. If you look at the early church, it met in homes. They didn't build buildings that had to be financed and paid for and sustained. Uh, they cared for each other. Uh, If one had more than someone else, they shared it. It wasn't socialism, it was love. And the church began as an organism and it morphed into an institution. And now institutions have to be preserved. You have to have budgets and you have to have all of these other things. And in these mega churches, especially of several thousand members, very few people know each other. They just come and they participate in the thing, and nobody Yeah, how are your kids doing? There's none of that. Uh, I'll pray for you, specific medical issue. And a lot of young people, and I understand why, see the church, which is really defined by Paul in Colossians as Christ in you, not a brick and mortar building, as irrelevant. It has no meaning for their lives. I understand it. And then, of course, uh, there are an awful lot of people uh, divorcing and are living together and Kids see this and they say, well, why do I need to uh, get married? Or why do I need to, you know, my parents said they were Christian, but they were divorced or my father was having an affair. So that's irrelevant to me. And so those are very serious things that the church, meaning us, uh, need to address. And the final thing would be people don't see a, a whole lot of action outside of the building on Sunday morning. You know, the greatest uh, evangelical tools that Jesus gave us are the least that are practiced among believers. Mm -hmm. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, uh, care for widows and orphans, and visit those in prison. Now, how many, when when unbelievers hear the word Christian or Jesus follower, are these the first things that come to mind? Now it's more like, well, let's see, they don't like gays, they're anti-abortion, they don't like TV and movies, and they're negative about everything. That's the stereotype. But unfortunately, too many of us give them uh, material that uh, that underscores that stereotype.
0: But, you know, it's also, I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to totally blame the media, but you, but secular media really just wants to focus on those things. You know, it's one of the things I really get upset about when, when I when I actually watch TV or when I watch other programs or I read articles that are supposedly about the same thing and they're taking totally different views of it, that they don't, they, they want to destroy religion. They want to paint a negative view of faith in the public's um, persona, because, um, you know, it, spiritually speaking, of course, you know, it's, you know, Satan's will, but I mean, but other than that, it's like, I don't, they don't want Christianity be, to be true, because that means I have to
1: admit I'm a sinful human being. Well, it's not only that, Lauren, uh, you look at what happens in China and the persecution of the church there. The communist government doesn't want anybody worshiping an authority higher than the state. And as far as the media go, you notice they never promote solutions, they only promote conflict. Uh, So the Republicans are saying this today, and what is the Democrat reaction? The Democrats are saying this today, and what is the Republican reaction? And what about the next election? And the one after that? And it's all conflict, it's not solution. Because like the politicians, if the media actually focused on solutions and what worked, title of another book I wrote, uh, then they would lose the issue, and uh, there, there wouldn't be uh, the kind of conflict that they profit on from, uh, uh, from having these guests on. I mean, I watch, as you do, a lot of different media. I almost never see anybody propose an actual solution to a problem. They're talking points. There's everything we've heard before. One person says, you're ruining America, and the other one says, no, you're ruining America. Uh, and and we'll be back with more after this message. So <laughs> what have you solved? Nothing. Maybe you've maybe you've excited your base, but uh, you haven't solved anything. And I think that's a real problem. Well, so, you know, what about the idea that you've got career politicians,
0: but also the idea that even those career politicians have to run for office every few years. So their philosophy kind of shifts with the cultural winds. I mean, isn't that a problem as well?
1: Oh, sure. You look at... Uh, Uh, some of these district attorneys and governors where uh, they are not uh, keeping looters and rioters in jail, but letting them right back out on the street. And all of a sudden, some of them, having seen the reaction of voters, are saying, well, uh, I guess we uh, need to uh, take another look at this and do (laughs) it differently. I mean, my opening line and lecture circuit is I'm happy to be here from Washington, D.C., where the only politicians with convictions are in prison. It always gets a laugh. But uh, there's a lot of truth in it, too. Uh, and you, you pointed out something. These are career people. There was no uh, intention by the founders that political service would be a career. These were lawyers, business people uh, who came to Washington, who served for a limited time and went home for real jobs. My favorite story on all of this came from my friend George McGovern, the 1972 Democratic presidential candidate, former senator from uh, South Dakota who got defeated in the Reagan landslide in 1980. And uh, he was, he's decided to do something different. He bought an inn in Connecticut and tried to run it. And after a couple of years, it went belly up. Wall Street Journal called him up, want to know what happened. And the only thing you need to know is wh- what happens when people stay too long in Washington. George McGovern said, gee, if I'd known how difficult it was to run a business, I might have voted differently in the Senate. Well, there you have it. You know, Patrick Leahy's just retired after 40 years. 40 years but the voters keep returning these people because they get stuff and what you have now is envy greeted entitlement the unholy trinity of the secular progressives when i was growing up it was inspiration followed by motivation followed by perspiration can improve any life okay it's all flipped now
0: well i want to take a break right now on lighthouse faith podcast we're going to be coming back talking with cal thomas we're going to talk about the true meaning of christmas because you want to you wrote a wonderful article and want to talk about that we'll be right
1: back
0: And we're back with Cal Thomas, uh, a syndicated columnist and a very witty and insanely uh, a, a smart person. In life. I feel <laughs> witty, oh so <laughs> witty, and a, and a big fan of the arts and Broadway. Can't wait to the, see the
1: remake of West Side Story. I, I oh, you have have you seen it yet? I'm seeing it Sunday.
0: Wow, um, and you also wrote a very nice article about Stephen Sondheim uh, at yeah. his death. Uh, it's very really it's wonderful genius. genius really a genius and we we both love some of the same uh, same songs um his, his his song being alive is one of my great great favorites one of those things you can actually sing to yourself because it it just gets you right down to the very bone and the foundation it was,
1: it was in my proposal letter to my wife i quoted from it wow. alone's not al- alone's not alone you know alone's not alive that's what it is alone you know
0: in a, and in many ways you can see that this is the heart really crying out for god their heart that says, you know, let me, let me be used, you know, fill my day. And it's like really foundationally, that is a heart crying for God. I mean, because I'm a musician, you know, and I see, and also a, a Christian and I understand, you know, Augustine's words about there is a God shaped hole in everyone's heart. And the fact that God has said in the Psalms more than 200 times to make music to him. And he's, there's something about music that draws us, but also I think so many of these longing songs are about the heart crying out for God, because that's the only one that can really satisfy the longing in the heart. Um,
1: Look at the last song in uh, West Side Story. There's a place for us. There's a place, time for and place for us. There is a hunger for significance. Every human being wants to believe that their life has meaning. The question is, where do you find that meaning? Do you find it in your job? Uh, I had a woman come up to me years ago and said, oh, I know who you are. And I said, no, ma'am, you know what I do. Knowing who I am will take a longer relationship. Uh, My wife (laughs) hates it when I do that. But uh, the the hunger for significance is in every human heart. And people look in different places to find it. And you mentioned that uh, Harvard study that appeared in Christianity Today and so many people committing suicide. They haven't found it. They've tried other things, and it's all wood, hay, and stubble. It's like Peggy Lee's old song, I'll date myself because girls wouldn't go out with me in high school. Uh, <laughs> is that all there is? Is that all there is to life? If that's all there is, let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. And that is the cry, the lament of people who have searched for meaning and have not found it because as the other song says, they've been looking for love in all the wrong places.
0: <laughs> but this is the you know, this is the Christmas season. I'm going to say Christmas. I'm not going to say holiday. I'm going to say Christmas season. Well, we actually kind of gloss over the true meaning of Christmas because um, why do you think people gloss over the true meaning of Christmas?
1: You know, Harry Reasoner, who worked for 60 Minutes and also anchored on ABC, uh, wrote a little essay some years ago, and the gist of it was: if it's true, it should matter. It should influence not only your life but the whole world. It's not just one option. You can have Jesus or Frosty or Rudolph or nothing or Kwanzaa the day after. It's, it's not just a multiple choice. This is a unique message of God becoming man. Uh, years ago, when I uh, was on uh, CNN a lot and uh, sat in for Pat Buchanan on Crossfire, my worthy opponent was Bill Press. And on one particular subject, uh, he said, well, you know, Cal, as it says in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. I said, where is that? I must have missed it. Uh, He said, well, it's in there somewhere. I said, well, actually, it's not, Bill. The fact is God has helped those who can't help themselves, and that's why Jesus came. You see, this is the ultimate act of love. This defines love. God in the Son took off all of his holiness and righteousness and condescended to become a human being because it is the only way that by living a perfect life, dying a perfect sacrificial death and proving that he was God, unlike all of these other religious heads rising from the grave, was seen by hundreds, none of whom recanted under penalty of prison and death. And this is what makes him unique in the world and the only one who is able to completely change a life in a way that is pleasing to God. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, a place, not a not a cloud, not a something we couldn't understand, but a place. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so we hear about the real meaning of Christmas, and people define that by saying, well, uh, you know, they've done a kind act, or they've they've, uh, given a nice gift to somebody who couldn't afford to give back or something. And all of those are worthy things, but they don't satisfy the uh, requirement of a holy and righteous God into whose presence we cannot move without the sacrificial blood, and that comes only through Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, as Peter confessed him when standing before him.
0: How can people this time of year, if they're kind of on the fence about believing in Jesus as the son of God, as the divine healer, as this um, God who has come to us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, how can they connect with that God and, and in the true meaning of Christmas?
1: Well, they have to ask him. He loves to be asked, um, There's a verse in the Old Testament, if you truly seek him, you shall ever surely find him. Um, Ask. He wants to be asked. He responds to prayer. Uh, Even the most fundamental and uh, prayer that you would never hear in a fancy church, you just cry out to him and say, God, I need you. I'm a sinner. Everything else I have tried doesn't work. If you are real, come to me. If you are real, save me. He will respond to that if the prayer is earnest. Uh, but you know, a lot of people have an idea of God that he's a giant ATM and, uh, that he should deliver. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to, you know, I liked a girl. I said, Oh, please God, make her like me. Well, that's stupid and selfish. Uh, she did regret it later, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, I went to my 50th high school reunion. They asked me to speak and I said, I don't want to speak. No, no, you need, you're our most famous graduate. You need to speak. All right. So I got up but uh, you know, we had a class of 450. I think 200 showed up. I said, "Okay, for all you girls who wouldn't go out from, with me in high school, eat your heart out." So <laughs> some of them still said they were glad they didn't. But that's another story. Yeah, I think uh, Christmas is a great opportunity for people who are who are believers in and followers of Jesus Christ to um, ask people. You know, what do you think about him? Uh, do a man on the street interview. Uh, ask where they get these ideas because a lot of them are culturally derived. Uh, like I did with Bill Press, who by the way, had gone to seminary, uh, which tells you something about the state of our seminaries. Uh, God intervene in human form. Now, you might ask a person, you know, we, we've, had, uh, we've had all kinds of money spent on various programs, anti-poverty programs, and yet $11 trillion the last time I saw the money, uh, and yet we have about as many poor people as we did before maybe we should try something else. Uh, And then we have uh, wars. People are fighting each other all the time, not only with, not only with weapons, but I just got an email today who said that I was a horrible person. I said, yeah, I know. That's why I need Jesus. You know, actually, I'm not a horrible person. I'm a sinner. That's different. But anyway, uh, and and so we can use these cultural things to ask people, uh, well, what, what other things are there out there? May I tell you what has changed my life i used to be this and now i'm this by the grace of god and maybe you have not considered the claims of christ give someone a living new testament i know that's what first got me interested when i saw the language of scripture translated or paraphrased in modern language and it all made sense why do we fight why do we why do we hate each other why is there racism why is there all of these other terrible things is because we're sinners And we need to be not reformed from the outside by government, but redeemed by the inside, by the power of God. You know, one of the key things,
0: I was reading a J.I. Packer's book Mm. on um, evangelism and the sovereignty of God Mm -hmm. and talking about that we are called to forgive. And there are a lot of people, Christians, I'm going to say, I'm going to call on them right now who really don't want to forgive. And I and I, One of the things I try to say say to people is that, you know, why do you think the creator of the universe had to die in order to forgive? Because forgiveness is hard.
1: Well, it is. I already know that. But we're
0: called to forgive.
1: Yes. There's something else, too. Uh, There's a member of my family who uh, said to his wife, who is a believer, that uh, I don't believe in myths. Well, this is a display of ignorance. Uh, because the person has not investigated. Uh, You might as well say, well, I don't believe in automobiles, or I don't believe in uh, gravity, or whatever. Well, you haven't investigated. Have you taken the time? Have you read C.S. Lewis? Have you read Solzhenitsyn? Have you read Lincoln? Have you read uh, some of the great minds, which are much greater than yours or mine, in history? Uh, Lewis was a practicing atheist, and he was an agnostic. And then he became a believer because the evidence was overpowering. Chuck Colson, the former Nixon aide who went to prison, the Watergate affair, wrote a book and in it he said, uh, why Watergate proves the resurrection. <clears throat> and he said, we were powerful men in the White House. We could pick up a phone and order a plane at Andrews Air Force Base to take us anywhere. We could order bird kernels around. Uh, but it was only 10 days between the time John Dean the, uh, walked into Nixon's office and said, Mr. President, there's a cancer growing on your presidency for the first of the, uh, the guilty to beat it down to Leon Jaworski's office, the special prosecutor, and start copying pleas. Now, Chuck said, the disciples were men of no power. They were doubly occupied by the Roman government and by the Jewish authorities of the day. And yet every single one of them went to his death, or in the case of John, uh, exile on the Isle of Patmos swearing that Jesus was the Christ and that he had been raised from the dead. And Colson said, common sense would tell you that if it wasn't true, at least one of them and probably more than that would have recanted to save their skin. And that's why Watergate proves the resurrection. I love that.
0: Wow. Before we go, um, what are what would be your parting words for people for this Christmas?
1: read the book, read the story. It's a beautiful story. And, uh, you know, don't be taken in by those silly plastic manger scenes and other things. It was rough giving birth in a stable by yourself. Uh, It was rough not having the accoutrements that women should expect today in a hospital or even uh, a home birthing situation and cleanliness. It was difficult for Joseph. Can you imagine an angel coming in your dream and say, look, your wife is pregnant and it wasn't you? I mean, this is, this is difficult stuff, but it's all mixed up in human nature. And Joseph's great faith and Mary's great faith, who said, I am the Lord's servant. It's a beautiful story. It never stops being beautiful. And it is the only story at Christmas or any other time of year that leads you to the one who can fill the hole in the heart of every human being who has ever lived. There was a little chorus written years ago, and I can't remember who wrote it. It said, Christmas isn't Christmas till it happens in your heart. Somewhere deep inside you is where Christmas really starts. So give your heart to Jesus. You'll discover when you do that it's Christmas, really Christmas for you.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Cal Thomas. And your book, America's expiration Date, I want to get that, but also just uh, listen to those words, really wonderful words. Thank you so much for being on my Happy Christmas, Lauren. Merry Christmas to you. And Merry Christmas to you all. Thanks for listening to Lighthouse Spring. Have a blessed day.